Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called you, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. In his book, uh, Learning to Love the Psalms, Robert Godfrey observes that in many respects, this particular psalm, Psalms 138, is an answer to the lament of Psalms 137. Uh, And I do somewhat agree with that assessment. And what I find interesting, of course, is that um, Psalms 137 is written some almost over 350 years after David writes Psalms 138. And so what I would like to do just for a moment before we look at Psalms 138 is make a couple observations concerning uh, Psalms 137 And the reason is because of the situation. You see what takes place in Psalms 137. It's one of those few places in scripture that, or one of the few Psalms, I should say, that was actually written during the period of the exile, the Babylonian exile. And in that instance, I often argue that the place of the church in the world is more akin to Israel in Babylon before the exile and Israel returned to the land after the exile. And the reason I make that distinction is because oftentimes Christians, especially in the West, we try to assume for our nation what God says of national Israel and they don't go together. Our nation is like every other nation it is part of the whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation. The nation that honors God is the church. So the church is its own kingdom. And therefore, God gives us service in this world, which we'll see, but we are not to confuse the church with the, the state and the state with the church. And the reason that's significant is what we, take, what we see taking place in Psalms 137 is Israel is displaced. And being displaced after this, this, uh, during this period of exile, we see that they are struggling in terms of how they are to serve and honor God in this foreign place. And so therefore, we'll look first at, at some of their frustrations and then look at how David answers them even almost 380 years before this period of exile. And so his words to them would be his words to us. Uh, Now, hold in mind, again, as we go back and look at um, Psalms 137, I think it's it's written, as we mentioned, in exile. And verse verse 4 
of Psalms 137, haunting as it is in its melody, really kind of drives the, the essence of the whole psalm. The question that is raised in, in verse 4 is how shall we sing to the Lord or sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? That's their concern. That's their frustration. Now, this is in response to what appears in verse 3, and this is what also shouldn't be lost sight of in, in verse 3. It says, For there are captives or our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And in effect, I think what is described in verse 3 is that they are asking, what they want in verse 4 is to sing genuine songs of praises to God. But what appears to be the case in verse 3 is that uh, their captors have reduced their heartfelt praise songs to God. Uh, the songs of God's people have been reduced to a cultural commodity. In other words, it's not that they are making fun. And some people have interpreted verse 3 as indicating the captors are making fun of the people of Zion. And I don't think that's the case. Maybe to some degree. But I think the main thing is that the singing of, of Zion songs are a source of amusement and also probably appeals to some aesthetic sensibilities on the part of the captors. So they love the singing without any knowledge of the God that's being sung about. I think we see the same sort of cultural accommodation. It was very popular at one point for certain rock and roll bands or whatever to use a gospel choir to sing in the background. And it's as if, and, and trust me, I don't have any problem with rock and roll music. I love all kinds of music. Um, but w the way, w when, when, when foreigner or whoever it else, you two, when they sing with a gospel choir, it's not necessarily because they are joining you in praise to God. They just think your sound is a cool sound. So McDonald's will have a fest and let y'all sing it out. And we will see no honor and reverence to God. And so really it's, it's like the, 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 the children of Israel as they are in Babylon, they said they bring us into the court, but all it is, it's, it's kind of like a minstrel show that we're just singing and, and, and grinning and there is no honor of God. So much so that we see that the song, it, it, in fact, I love what the way it expresses in verse 6. It says, the, the psalmist says, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. In other words, God's people want to give him honor. They want to sing praises to him, but they've just been given a stage where they can perform. And brothers and sisters, let's not confuse people being amused with performance with God being honored and God being glorified. No one thinks that the Jayhawk that is on the sidelines of the University of Kansas games is a real bird. No one thinks that the mascot that runs up and down the sidelines for Notre Dame football is a real leprechaun. And the people who ask us to sing at, on, on demand does not mean 
They like the God that you sing about. They just like the way you sound. That's what what the writer seems to be reflecting in Psalms 137. And, And so in essence, the psalmists in 137, as they are dislocated from the people of God, as they are established in Babylonian captivity and they are required to come and sing and amuse the people as a cultural phenom. They are saying, we are, how do we do this? How do we serve God in the midst of a hostile generation? And then you notice that the tone of Psalms 137 shifts. It goes from singing praises to God to now atone a vengeance against the enemy. And I think that's to, it's to this that David answers as he speaks to uh, the people about their circumstance and their situations. It, is, it seems as if what David is doing in Psalms 138 is giving us an idea of how to continuously praise God in the midst of circumstances that are not always the most comfortable, in the midst of a culture that may not be believing, but yet at the same time without compromise to what we are singing and, we're, uh, and praising God for. Therefore, I think what David does is he gives us uh, the reminder That the gospel itself, which is the center of all that we do, that God's people, no matter where they are, no matter what time, no matter what place, as we are nurtured and grounded in the truth of the gospel, it connects us to a truth that transcends our immediate circumstances. And this, again, is where David's words, even though they are written some 350 years earlier than than Psalms 137, His words actually answers the lament of Psalms 137. How shall we sing the praises of God in a foreign land? Well, let me extract five things from David's Psalm in 138 as a source for our own edification and a reminder of how we are to worship and serve God in spite of where we are and in spite of what surrounds us. In the first place, David reminds us of the perpetual challenge that contextualizes the worship and service of God's people this side of heaven. He reminds us of the perpetual challenge, and by perpetual that means continual, the continual challenge that contextualizes the worship and service of God's people on this side of heaven. In verse 1, he says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, and here's the phrase, before the gods. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. And by before the gods, what he means is in the presence of. Now, some have argued whether or not this refers to angelic beings or whether or not this refers to foreign gods. I I think it's a combination of foreign gods, pagan gods, as well as fallen angels. In other words, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, here's what David is aware of, that we are surrounded... As one writer put it, we are surrounded by rival gods and rival gospels. 
worship on this side of heaven is contextualized by the structure or by the, 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 by the, the challenge and, and by the appearance of things that are not consistent with our praise. Uh, that has two, a twofold effect for us. On the one hand, it's a reminder, uh, or on the one hand, the, the rival gods and the rival gospels, uh, uh, they not only, they, they, they sometimes attack us, and on the other hand, and here's the sad part of it, they sometimes appeal to us. See, the fact is, we are surrounded by rival gods and rival gospels. And our responsibility in this world is to serve God in this present generation in the very presence of rivals. So that we are neither appealed or they neither appeal to us nor do they affect us because we don't, we're not concerned about their attack. Uh, there are some that have changed. We see them changing their message and changing their service because of the presence of rival gods. Whether it's a religious journey from truth to error or whether it is seek, thinking that because no one likes what they are doing that it doesn't matter. David gives us, this is the context, the context with which we or in which we will serve God and worship him until the Lord returns is this, we will have rivals. It's not always going to be easy. I like the way Jonathan Edwards puts it, or Jonathan Edwards, when he says that God places before us that which is good and that which is not good so that we can consciously cling to the one and consciously reject the other. Jesus tells his disciples that my sheep know my voice and the voice of another they will not hear. In other words, the challenge to us in worshiping God in spirit and in truth, among other things, and of course there are variations of these things, but the, the, among other things is we have rivals that seek to distract us or discourage us from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And to these rivals, David says, I will, sing in, I will sing your praises in their face. Now that connects to what God says that he will do. In Psalms 23, he says he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And so it is in the presence of our enemies that God feeds and nurtures his people. And it's in the presence of enemies that we are to perpetually, or the perpetual presence of enemies is the context in which we are to sing, praise, and worship to God without being discouraged and distracted or, on the other hand, attacked and or find an appeal in the voice and the presence of the enemy. The second thing that we see here is because of this perpetual presence of these rivals, we must never lose our grasp of or our gratitude for the riches of God uh, or the riches of God's grace as it is in the gospel. It is because of these that the, the never-ending, never-failing presence, almost omnipresence of the rivals. In other words, the rival is everywhere. We must never lose our grasp of or our gratitude for the riches of God's grace in the gospel. Here's why that's important. 
And we'll see how, how, how David expresses this in the A part of verse 2. The reason that is important is because what can happen oftentimes as we hear the voice of the rival is that it diminishes our appetite for what God has given. We start looking for something else. We'll see that a little fuller tonight in uh, a passage we'll look at from the Old Testament. But look at what David says in verse 2. He says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, here's what someone would say. Let's go back to Psalms 137. Here they are. Some of them are still in Jerusalem, but they are under the oversight of Babylon. Others have been dislocated to Babylon. Here's what someone might say. What do I have to give thanks for? That's what the rival wants you to think. He will have you look at the success of others and then look at your meager state and say, what do I have to give thanks for? And so, again, the rival is always present. He's always present with another, with something that either seeks to attack your faithfulness or appeal to you so that you are no longer faithful. And David reminds us, look in verse 2, in the A part of verse 2, he says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and, and your faithfulness, for you have exalted. Well, we'll look at the B part in a moment, but here's, here's, here's the interesting thing and the important thing for us. Brothers and sisters, here's what we must not lose sight of. We must not let the rivals eclipse in any kind of way God's steadfast love towards us. Whether we are in exile or whether we are home and things have changed, it doesn't matter. God has remained faithful. We know that a cloudy day does not mean that the sun has left the sky. And God connects us to a truth that is greater to our, than our circumstances. And so he says, I will bow down towards your holy temple. We, cer- we certainly see this uh, really physically exemplified in Daniel. Remember Daniel when he was in Babylon. And every day he was excelling in his job and serving the government of Babylon. But every day Daniel made it a point to pray and not just pray in general. And by the way, there's no strength to him praying towards the direction of Jerusalem. But he did it because it was a physical reminder to himself That even though he's in Babylon, he ain't home yet. And brothers and sisters, I think sometimes our frustration is because we think we're at home. Maybe because the mortgage is paid, we think we're at home. But brothers and sisters, wherever there are rivals, that's a good indication you're not at home. As long as there are rivals who do not appreciate God's greatness or God's love and God's care, as long as those there are competing voices to the glory of God, it is evidence that we are not home. Because when we are home, there will be no rivals. So therefore, it is incumbent upon us that not only that we would that we would, would praise God in the, in the presence of our rivals, but we would exalt 
his grace and his glory, his, his steadfast love for us and recognize it. Not just, I don't mean just you know, whistling as you go through the graveyard. I mean really in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstances, we really know that God is good to us. Not trying to get something, not trying to shake something loose. Sometimes I, I hear people praising God or listen to some of the songs, and I think they're trying to convince themselves. No, I, I think they're trying to, to speak something into existence. But no, here's what we do. We have to know that God is, 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 is faithful to us, and his steadfast love, his covenant commitments to us is not determined by our circumstance. Here's the third thing. In our worship on this side of heaven, because of the presence of the rivals and because we do have to make a concerted effort to to focus on God's steadfast love and his faithfulness to us, therefore in our worship we must highly praise and value what God himself most highly exalted. In verse 2b, the b part of verse 2, he says, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now, in some translations, I know the old King James, it says that you have exalted your word above your name. But I think the ESV is probably a little closer in that, in that it says, Above all things, here's what you have exalted. Your name and the name of God is the name that he gives us by which we can access his attributes for us. It is God's, when God gives us a name, you see, when I tell you, you say, well, what's your name? I'm telling you what my parents named me. And, and sometimes our names are our family aspirations. Sometimes it's family history. And sometimes it's made up. Sometimes it's uh, our family trying to be unique, whatever it is. But the names of God is not the name his mother gave him because he has no mother. God's name is not, it's not, it doesn't embrace any family aspiration. God, what God uses as a name to reveal himself to his people is his expression of what he is for his people. So all of the Jehovah, the hyphenated Jehovah's, Jehovah Jireh and all the rest of them, all of it is Jehovah, the covenant God, brings all of this. And it's not exhaustive, by the way, because all of the various names of God is a reminder that whatever his people need, he is that for his people. And so here's what he says. Exalt. Here's what God has exalted above all things. And you think about, and by the way, think about a, an Old Testament Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And think of all of the things that are in there. All of the costly things, especially when Solomon built the temple with the finest wood and the finest um, minerals or, or metals and so forth. All of the gold-plated things, all of the things. And here's what God says is the thing that is most exalted to him. It's not the cost of the building. It's not, it's not the, the ornate furniture. It's not, the, it's not all of those things. But the thing that he has most exalted above everything else is his word. And by the way, in the context of this statement, the word that is exalted above all things is not his word in general, but his word of grace is exalted 
above all things. But not only is his word exalted, his word of grace is exalted above all things. The revelation of his name is exalted above all things. I think right away of the incarnation. In the incarnation, we are told that Jesus, his, his name, and this is part of the prophecy in, in Isaiah, and his name shall be Emmanuel. Why? Because it means God with us. One of my favorite preachers growing up used to talk about the with usness of God. And God is with us. And we are reminded that he is with, with us when we exalt what he exalts. And what he exalts above all things is the name by which he has given his people access to himself and his word of grace and pardon. And you say, well, how can we say that his, it, it's particularly his word of pardon? Well, because we know that God's word can be divided along two lines. What he commands... And what he commands can be verified by what we see in nature. In other words, just an observation of nature tells us the need for law and order. But the other part of his word is what he gives. And what he gives is not communicated in nature. His goodness is communicated in nature, but there is nothing that we see in nature that comes close to the idea of the eternal holy God taking on human flesh, dwelling amongst us, and in order to give us life, die. There is nothing. And so what he does is he puts it in a word. And the word of God, illustrated and demonstrated through the animal sacrifices, but the word of God's grace and his great name is to be exalted above all others. So whatever else we do, In our worship, when we gather together, what we must highly value above all things as we worship on this side of heaven is God's word of pardon and God's great name. Here's the fourth thing that we see in verses 4 and 5. David reminds us, even though we are living, we are surrounded by rivals, he talks about in the presence of other gods, we are reminded that it is through our persistent exaltation and proclamation of God's good news that the nations will come to know and trust God's saving grace. It is through our persistent exaltation and proclamation of God's good news of the gospel that the nations will know and come to trust God's saving grace. Verses 4 and 5, he says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. Why? Because they have heard the words of your mouth. And how have they heard the words of of, of the mouth of God? When God's people who have been strategically planted amongst them and declare the word of God, then those who are unbelievers have an opportunity to hear it. David goes on to say not only do they hear the word of God or uh, God's word from his mouth, but they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. In other words, they will know of God. They will know him for themselves, for great is the glory of the Lord. In Isaiah's prophecy, he speaks of a day when, and he, I think, intentionally goes to those that have been the historic enemies of God's people. He says, there is coming a time when Egypt and, is, and, and um, 
Babylon will come into the city of Jerusalem and worship God. How will they come? He doesn't mean they will physically come to Jerusalem, but he simply means that those who were former enemies of God's people will become brothers and sisters with God's people, and the way that will happen will not be through programs and projects. It will come through the persistent proclamation and exaltation of God's grace, his saving grace. Brothers and sisters, we are lights in the midst of a, of a dark world. We are sought in the midst of a tasteless generation. And our presence in the world doesn't, it does mean that we will help and be good neighbors in many and, and powerful ways. But really the thing that makes us different is not our programs, it's not our platforms, it's not our politicizing. The thing that makes us different in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation is the message that, yes, in the midst of our mess, God saves. And even those who say, well, what mess? He still saves. God saves. And when we do what we do, the only thing, by the way, that the church has been given, that no one else has been given the command to do, is declare the name of of Jesus and therefore escort people into the kingdom of heaven. We are the ones who have the keys to the kingdom. And how be it that we can think that we are using those keys when all we're doing sometimes is shuffling furniture on the on the deck of the Titanic. When we think and when we think that our biggest contribution is either something public or something that is is social and we should be engaged in the social fabric of our culture, but that's not what makes us church. What makes our church is not our giving of clothes and giving of food. What makes us church, anyone can do that, and we should be able to partner with anyone who is doing that. But brothers and sisters, God forbid that we are on the front lines of passing out food on Monday through Saturday. And then sound like other people who are just doing anything when it comes to Sunday. When it comes to the Lord's Day, here's how people will know of the God that we save. It's not because of what we do physically for them. It's when we give them the bread of heaven. The only thing that sets us apart is God has commissioned us with his message. No other people has he given the message of his saving grace. No other creature has he given the responsibility of proclaiming his mercy and his grace. And when we do that, kings are converted into our kingdom. When we do that, then soldiers are converted into the soldiers of the cross. When we do that, we make a difference because we are doing the only thing that can help those who are going down. Brothers and sisters, everything else can be done and has been done. But didn't, didn't Jesus ask the question, what, would it, what, does it, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? The soul is more precious than silver and gold. And the only thing that can help a wounded soul is the announcement of God's saving grace. Brothers and sisters, don't think that we made it just because they invite evangelicals on TV and we become part of the news cycle. No, it's not the movements that we are part of. 
It's our unwillingness to move from the gospel, which is the only thing, the only name given to men under heaven whereby they must be saved is the name of Jesus. And he has licensed only one people to use that name. And that's us. And it's interesting that we're doing everything but that. You see, again, we go back to the third point. That which he has most highly exalted, we must most highly value. And when we value that, then we put that message in a persistent proclamation. And the only way our enemies will come to know our Savior is through the message that we we continue to, to cry out, even when people don't want to hear it. We preach the gospel of Christ. I don't think uh, Paul wanted to hear it when he first heard it. In fact, he was busy putting people to death. Oh, but when it came home to him, he says, I consider everything else, everything else that I've done, I consider it refuge for the surpassing knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Kingdoms, if kings and kingdoms are to come, if, if, if those who are in the nations are to be made a part of the undying nation into the, the city on a hill, they must hear the gospel. And if they are to hear the gospel, it's got to come from us. Well, that brings us to a fifth and final thing, and that's what we see in verses 6 through 8. In verses 6 through 8, David infers that the gospel that we learn and the gospel that comforts us it 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 connects us to a great fact about that gospel that gospel is about the knowledge that the god who is high and lifted up does three things for the 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 souls that he saves one he condescends to the lowly two he is committed to our well-being and three He is committed to the guarantee of our completion. Three things. Let's look at them. In verse 6, here's what the gospel that we proclaim in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Here is the gospel that we proclaim in the very presence of the other gods. That the high, that the God who is high and lifted up condescends to the lowly. In verse 6 he says, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Brothers and sisters, isn't that good news? You see, there is no ladder for us to climb. The the lowly doesn't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Here's what God does. Here's what the announcement of the gospel is. He tells us that he comes down. He condescends. Two weeks ago, we, in, in Psalms 103, we looked at David where he says that he knows that we are dust. He knows that we are frail and that we are weak. But on top of that, he knows where we are. And the beauty of the gospel is that he comes to us. Brothers and sisters, there is no other religion where such a high God stoops to such a low degree. That was one of the reasons people had a problem in the first century with the gospel. They says, we want a gospel of heroes. We want a gospel where we can go from rags to riches, not about a God who goes from riches to rags. But here is the good news of the gospel. He condescends to the lowly. 
one brother put it this way in reference to the statement in Hebrews that he, he is able to save to the, to the uttermost those who come to him by faith. One brother put it this way, that he saves from the uttermost to the guttermost. He condescends. Oh, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we, don't have a, we shouldn't have a problem serving and, and reaching out and reaching down is because the God that we serve condescends. It's still a message that is difficult for us to digest. Peter, when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples, he just could not conceive of a God that he bowed down to washing his feet. But then Jesus says, no, Peter, you don't get it. If I don't wash your feet, you don't get in. Peter says, then don't stop at my feet. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we can go into the highways, and we go into the byways, and we don't give them Jacob's ladder to climb. We give them a message about a God who doesn't tell us to, to just pull yourself up and do better. We come to a God who came to us. Can you imagine the creator of all creation, a baby, wrapped in diapers? Behold your God. And in that condescension is the redemption of our human experience. He condescends to the lowly. Here's the second thing. Not only does, do we see here that he condescends to the lowly, but he's committed to us. He doesn't, he doesn't stay with you. I'm with you until, look in verse, in verse 7. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. And I love this. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Let's pause there for a moment. Because the wording here is interesting. He doesn't say that all of my enemies, you're going to beat them up. And he doesn't even say that God's hand stretches out against his enemies. He says that the hand of the Lord, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. So the wrath is what we can't see. We just see the effects of it. So even though the lashes of our enemies will might come upon us, but he says, that's okay, I got you. I'll deliver you. It's similar to what Paul expresses in Romans 8 when he raises the question, who can bring any charge against God's elect? There's a great passage in, in Pilgrim's Progress where, where Christians, uh, where, where Apollyon, the, the devil, is, is charging once, once Christian becomes a Christian and, and he, he has the initial challenge and, and, and uh, he's still faithful. And then Apollyon, the devil, comes to him and he, and he starts accusing what I'm going to do and he's going to bring all kind of accusations against, against him. And, and then Christian speaks boldly. He says, that's okay. Go ahead. Say all that you. He says, there, there's much more you could say that you didn't that's okay because my God has forgiven me my new Lord has forgiven me and that is my strength so brothers and sisters the wrath of the enemies fails they can't bring any charge against that's why Paul says who can bring any charge against God's elect it is God who has justified 
And so, brothers and sisters, the wrath of our enemies, they may, they may get, may get a rise or two. They may, they may get, we see from all of the martyrs throughout church history that the enemies, they're through their actions, they may actually take out the life of a believer. But wrath is something altogether different. God takes their wrath and turns it into a rescue for his saints. It becomes a raft of deliverance. So he is committed to our well-being. And in the good news of God being with us, condescending uh, for us, is that he doesn't leave us when trouble arises. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. But here's the third and final thing we see in verse 8. That not only does God condescend, which is a comfort for his people, is he, he's also committed to our well-being, but he is also committed to the guarantee of our completion. In verse 8, he says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Someone sent me a book a while back about the myths of eternal security. And to be honest with you, I haven't even read it because I already know that it's bogus, that there is no myth to eternal security. And, they, and I know what they tried to do. They tried to point out all the scriptures that talk about people about to the end or whatever. But, but however you parse it and people think that, yeah, you might lose your salvation, here's what we forget. What God has promised the souls that he saves is everlasting life. That's what he's promised. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not die but have everlasting life. Now, two things we have to understand there. A, what is everlasting life? And B, who it is that promises it. You see, because you, has anybody here ever signed and gotten a guarantee for lifetime guarantee? Don't you love those? It is the most honest statement that a man could ever make. I will give you a lifetime guarantee. It's very honest because it says that my guarantee is as long as either my life or yours. What God gives in the gift of eternal life is a gift that corresponds to his life. And his is an everlasting life. So therefore he gives everlasting salvation to those that he everlastingly loves. And so therefore God is not only committed to our well-being when we are in trouble, but at the end of it, he will, he will fulfill his purpose for me. I love that statement. God will fulfill his purpose for me. I may not fulfill what God has told me to do, but he will fulfill all that he has purposed for me. Brothers and sisters, it always comes down to God. Here is what helps us as we serve God in a hostile culture. is to know that we are, served, we are surrounded by hostility but it is also to know that in the midst of our hostile situation, that grace is made available. 
And that message of grace with sinners in the revelation of God's great name and the magnifying of his word of pardon. It's through this that we fulfill our commission and call to evangelize the nations. But when we proclaim and gather under the umbrella of God's grace in his gospel, then here's what he's reminding us as we go through wherever it is that we are on the journey. Know this. Know that he has condescended to you. So I know we, here sometimes we find our lives spiraling out of control. And that's when people start making promises. As soon as I get it together, I'll come. No, you, you won't. You won't get it together. That's why Jesus came. This is what the writer of Hebrews puts in the mouth of Jesus from the 40th number of Psalms, verses 6 through 8. He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me to do your will, O God. The good news of the gospel and the comfort for our journey is that when we can't, he condescended to us. And everything that we should do but couldn't do, he did. And then, brothers and sisters, he doesn't leave us when the weather gets rough. He's he's with us in the midst of our troubles. He comforts us with with, with whatever we need for wherever we are. But then, brothers and sisters, he's committed that that which, and that's why I like what Paul says in the New Testament, I am confident of this one thing, that that which he has Put in me that which he has begun. He is able to complete that which he has given or done until the day of redemption. The guarantee of our completion is wrapped up in the gospel message. So when we gather in this place where we are surrounded by Babylonians, I know what they want. They want us to sing. They want us to dance. They want our tambourines. They want our rhythm. They want all of that. But let us give them our God. Let us not be convinced that we have somehow become significant because we sing good and they invite us to the White House or any other or McDonald's or wherever. If they they invite us, let them hear. Let us come not into their gathering, but we pray that they would come into ours. And here's the difference is, you see, they want to... And and sometimes, you know, they'll say in comedy that sometimes folk are not laughing with you, they're laughing at you. And sometimes the cultural use of church and and certain segments of the church, we think they, they are giving us honor. No, they're talking, they're making us look like the buffoons that we are. But here's how we know that the message has reached them, is when they sing. The praises of Zion. And that's what David is speaking of. When he speaks of them, he speaks of them as all the kings, he says, shall give thanks when they have heard the words of your mouth and they shall sing the very songs that they have commissioned you to sing culturally. Brothers and sisters, God has come to us and he is with us until we get home. David's answer to Psalms 137 is know the gospel, sing the gospel, live in the gospel, and trust the gospel until we get home. Let's pray.